Our first our speaker this morning on our uh, series on homelessness is uh, Jesse Rabinowitz, who uh, works as an advocate at uh, uh, Miriam's Kitchen, which many of you are, I think all of you are familiar with. Uh, and uh, he will talk about their new program of more than just feeding, but bringing people home. Great. So do you think we're expecting any more folks to join us? Okay, so we can go ahead and get started. Um, as Nice. Definitely, and it's a kind of a rainy Sunday, so thank you so much for coming to join us. So as Fred mentioned, my name is Jesse, and I work over at Miriam's Kitchen. I work both in our advocacy department doing citywide advocacy and systems change work. And I also work as a case manager working directly with our clients, um, helping meet their basic needs with the goal of ending their experience of homelessness. Um, and we work really, really closely with this church and particularly around um, your ID ministry. I don't even know the amount of people I refer over to here a week, but it seems like nearly every day we're sending folks over here. So thank you so much for helping us in that we know that one of the barriers that people experience to getting housed is lack of identifying documents, IDs, social security cards, birth certificates. So anything we can do to expedite that process and to make sure that someone's not staying outside for an extra day. I know. Um, and we're so thankful. We know that there are times when people are matched to a voucher waiting to move into an apartment, uh, but they can't because they don't have an ID which we think is pretty silly. Um, but last year, Miriam's Kitchen, which is a small nonprofit, spent about $50,000 uh, paying for people's birth certificates and IDs, which is just a little bit too much money for us. So we're grateful to have partners such as this church and Foundry United Methodist Church uh, down near DuPont that help us provide IDs to not only our clients, but to folks around the city. Um, are folks familiar with Miriam's Kitchen? Yes, Western Presbyterian Church. So I can give a little bit of background. Miriam's Kitchen opened 33 years ago, um, really to meet the uh, needs of people experiencing homelessness in the Foggy Bottom area. This was really at the height of deinstitutionalization where a lot of folks with mental illness were discharged from uh, state and federally run institutions and kind of left to fend for themselves on the streets. So Miriam's Kitchen was founded uh, between a few different faith-based organizations in the Foggy Bottom area, really to provide anything that we could. Um, so breakfast was frequently powdered eggs and hot dogs, and it was mostly volunteer run. We didn't really have case management. Um, and then about 20 or so years ago, we brought in a chef, Steve Batt, down from Boston, and he transformed how we do work. He uh, began to address things under the model of hospitality and he put forth a motto from his kitchen that he wouldn't serve anything to our guests that he wouldn't serve to restaurants in his uh, to customers in his restaurants. And Steve ran some uh, very famous restaurants, so the quality of the food was very, very good. Everything was made in house. Everything is fresh. As much produce uh, that's locally grown, uh, we get from the White House farmers market, from different farmers markets, co-ops, grocery stores, things like that. Um, so fast forward to about five years ago, uh, Miriam's Kitchen was serving about 300 people a day. We were serving breakfast and dinner. 
Um, every Monday through Friday, we also have a team of case managers that work to help people with job applications, housing applications, apply for food stamps, get health benefits, um, toiletries, shampoo. We can collect people's mail, give haircuts, really anything we can do in our dining room. Um, but we started to realize that we had gotten really, really good at managing homelessness, that um, we had good rapport with our clients, that we had good services, that people around the city knew us, that um, we were pretty busy. Um, and then five years ago, there was a decision before I came on uh, to shift from this model of hospitality to ending homelessness. So in the past few years, we've launched three new teams. We have the permanent supportive housing team, which provides housing to housing supportive services to 102 people living across the city. We have a street outreach team which goes and meets people on the streets where they are, either in their tents or in parks and benches, um, under highways, everything like that in the Foggy Bottom area that will go and connect people with services and bring the services to them, whether that's working with a doctor to go check up on them or going out to the field to apply for social security um, and hoping to bring the person into Miriam's Kitchen uh, proper eventually. And then we also have an advocacy team, which is uh, consists of myself and uh, one other full-time person and two part-time people. Out of all of the homeless service providers in the city, Miriam's has the largest advocacy, advocacy team. So we are constantly down at the Wilson Building, at the DC Council, trying to bug the mayor and trying to let her know that we can actually end chronic homelessness, um, but we need their help with investments and with money. So that's a little bit of the Miriam's overview. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about who our clients are, who we serve, and then why we think it's possible to end chronic homelessness. Does that sound good? And remind me what time we're going until. 11.05, okay. Um, I wanna start with a story in that case. So think back to maybe 10 months ago, the blizzard. Um, and just to jog folks' memory, there were about two or three feet of snow on the ground and the blizzard started on a Friday um, and it got really bad over the weekend. So it was a Monday in our dining room. Uh, Miriam's Kitchen never closes. We've had chefs and volunteers ski in from Silver Spring. People frequently will walk to work and spend the night. Um, we never close because we know that homelessness, our guests don't really get a day off, so we don't get a day off either. Um, so we are there during We've had like fires in the kitchen, floods, sewage backups, snow, whatever, we're there. Um, and we're happy to be there. But it was the Monday morning after the blizzard and one of our guests came into our dining room and went over to a case manager and said, there's a guy under the bridge without any legs. And we're like, what, what does that mean? Like, what, what does that mean? But it doesn't sound good. So let's go and check it out. So a few of our case managers ran through the snow to the end the bridge underneath the Whitehurst Freeway, which is pretty close to Miriam's. And there was a double amputee there um, whose legs, whose prosthetic legs had frozen to the ground um, on a Friday. So he was down there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and this was Monday morning. So he was just kind of like lying in the snow, unable to move. He had not eaten anything, not had any water. He had not been able to get up to go to the bathroom. So he was pretty dirty. Um, and he had been lying down there in the snow, just almost frozen to death. Um, so our case managers called 911 and it took a team of 12 uh, emergency rescue people to hoist him onto this makeshift toboggan and pull him out of this embankment, 
where he was brought to the GW hospital, warmed up, cleaned up, rehydrated, um, and then they discharged him back to the streets. Um, so this story shows how urgent it is to end chronic homelessness. Last year, 43 people from the homeless community died in DC. We know the average age of someone experiencing chronic homelessness is 55, and the average life expectancy is 62. So my dad's 62. That's a number that really hits home to me. Um, and we know that anyone who's older than 62 in the homeless community is really living on borrowed time. People die from the three most prevalent diseases are HIV, heart disease, and diabetes. Um, and we know that it's really, really hard to manage any of those diseases if you don't have sometimes a refrigerator, but all the times a medicine cabinet and the ability to take your meds on a regular time frame, keep them in a safe space, um, eat food if you need to eat food with your meds. So we really see that ending chronic homelessness is urgent. Um, and we've launched a new initiative. Some of you have this photocopy of a newspaper. Some don't, I ran out of copies, but there's, there are some floating around. This is an, an initi initiative that we've launched called Vigil 365 in partnership with Street Sense, which is DC's street newspaper, and with the People for Fairness Coalition, which is um, a homeless-led, homeless organizing and advocacy group to memorialize the lives of people who have died from DC's homeless community. So every time that someone dies on the streets, we are committed to writing a story or an obituary about it, publishing it in Street Sense, and bringing it to the mayor and our elected officials to remind them that in the nation's capital, there are people who are living and dying on our, on our streets and in our shelters um, and without housing. So this was the first story we ran. This is a brand new initiative that launched about a week and a half ago featuring Mr. Weldon Moore, who was a, a Miriam's Kitchen client who passed away uh, due to complications from cancer. Unfortunately, we know that next Wednesday when the next Street Sense comes out, we'll have another article in it. Um, so in the past two months, we've had about three or four clients pass away um, from the homeless community. So we really want to tell the mayor that this is incredibly important, that homelessness kills people, that it lowers people's life expectancy, and we feel that in a city with a $13 billion a year budget, no one should have to live and die on the streets. Um, so let's kind of back up and talk about the Way Home campaign. So Miriam's Kitchen, because as I mentioned, we have dedicated advocacy staff, plays a lead role in organizing the Way Home campaign, which you all should have a one-pager about. The Way Home campaign was started about two and a half or three years ago um, and has really grown immensely since then. We now have 90 partner organizations, including this church, including many Washington Interfaith Network uh, congregations, service providers, restaurants, businesses, um, and we're always looking for more. So if you, if you know anyone else who might want to get involved, uh, please let me know. We also bring together about 4,000 individuals, people who work, worship, and live in the district to tell the mayor that ending chronic homelessness is possible. And we really focus on three key messaging points. We already talked about how ending chronic homelessness is urgent because people are dying on the streets. Um, we also think that ending chronic homelessness is cost effective. So we were able to do a study using some great data sets we had that looked at the 828 most vulnerable people in the city who were experiencing homelessness. And through a system we use, we're able to track how many times that person, each person went to the hospital, to the ER, used a suicide hotline, used a meal program, went to the shelter. We have, as a kind of a data geek, we have amazing data. And we were able to cost out how much money this cost um, the city to, to really just 
manage these 800 or so people who are living on the streets. We compared that with the cost of putting those 828 people into permanent supportive housing, and we realized it would save in one year the city about $13.8 million. So I've worked on progressive causes for a while. It's not super frequent where you have something that's like the moral and right progressive choice, in my mind, that's also like incredibly cost effective. So we're going to be spending this money anyway. We think that we should spend it on housing. Um, and then we also think that um, ending chronic homelessness is possible. As someone was mentioning, in uh, Salt Lake City in Utah, they've ended chronic homelessness. In my home state of Virginia, they've ended veterans homelessness. In cities and states across the country, they've ended homelessness for veterans or different subpopulations. And in DC, in the past three years, we've housed 1,500 veterans. So we know that these things, supportive housing, having a dedicated by name list of people experiencing homelessness, having supportive services, having a housing first system, which we'll talk about, um, all of these things work to end homelessness. And we know that if we can end homelessness for veterans, we can also end it for people who are not veterans. So we, in the past three years, we've housed about 1,500 veterans who are experiencing homelessness in the past three years. And we have about 1,500 people who are experiencing chronic homelessness in DC, 1,502 at the last count. So if we can do it for one set of 1,500 people, there's no reason we can't do it for, do it for another set of 1,500 people. Yes. Uh, definitely, great, thank you for reminding me. So chronic homelessness has a pretty uh, wonky definition. Uh, it means someone who's experienced homelessness for a year or more, or three or four times in the past, or three times in the past four years for a length of a year or more, um, and has a disabling medical condition, whether that's a mental health condition, a physical health condition, or a substance abuse condition. Um, the average age of someone experiencing chronic homelessness is 55. The average life expectancy is 62. Um, it's predominantly men, it's predominantly black men. So at Miriam's Kitchen, we also think about this through a racial justice lens that between 77 and 85% of people experiencing homelessness in DC are black. Um, and we don't think that is coincidence. Um, so we've ended homelessness for 15 veterans, 1,500 veterans. There's no reason we can't end it for 1,500 people experiencing chronic homelessness. So I just threw a lot of information at you. Does anyone have any questions? before we go a little more. Yes. Yeah, when you say the Mayor's Housing Trust, are you referring to the Housing Production Trust Fund? Um, so the Housing Production Trust Fund is $100 million set aside every year, about half of it funded by city money and about half of it funded by taxes that goes to preserve affordable housing and build affordable housing. About 5% of those units are permanent supportive housing, which go towards individuals experiencing homelessness. So that works out to be 10 or 20 units, um, which is great, but it's not enough. Um, the Housing Production Trust Fund is something we advocate for because we know that lack of affordable housing is a huge driver of homelessness, but we also know that there are, we need a much more robust intervention uh, um, in addition to the Housing Production Trust Fund. Uh, my last glance, it looks like, uh, so what's the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment in DC? It's about $1,500 if you like, $1,500 for the whole city and like my neighborhood of like Foggy Bottom and DuPont, it's like closer to like $23,000, $24,000, which is just a lot of money. Um, a lot of people living on fixed incomes who have been living here for a while just can't afford that. So we know that they're, um, underlying this 
chronic homelessness crisis, there's also just an affordable housing crisis. And the experts say that it will take DC uh, $500 million a year for the next 10 years to solve that housing crisis. So $100 million is great, um, but it's about $400 million a year too short. Um, so um, while the Housing Production Trust Fund does touch on a little homelessness, when the mayor says that I've committed to ending chronic homelessness because I've invested in the Housing Production Trust Fund, um, she needs to do more than that to really uh, stand by her commitment of ending homelessness. So DC, a few years ago, authored a plan called Homeward DC, which is a strategic plan to end veterans homelessness by 2015 and chronic homelessness by 2017 and end all homelessness by 2020. So we didn't meet the 2015 deadline, um, but we did learn a lot. We learned the importance of having active engagement in the shelters, having a project manager, um, and that this is just really hard. Um, and there are some reasons why housing veterans is perhaps more difficult than housing individuals experiencing chronic homelessness. Um, and we need your help to meet that 2017 deadline. It's gonna be really, really close. And then by 2020, we hope that we know we're never gonna end homelessness. For many reasons, people are always going to lose their housing, uh, but our hope is that by 2020, homelessness is brief, rare, and non-recurring. So we hope that uh, someone gets housed between 30 and 60 days after losing their housing, and it's a one-time thing, and that it never happens to them again. But this Homeward DC plan was adopted and supported by the DC Council, and also by the mayor. So the mayor has said at our events, at an event last week, that she's committed to Homeward DC. But within that, she's really committing to end chronic homelessness by 2017. Um, and we do a lot of budget advocacy at Miriam's Kitchen and through the Way Home campaign. And the investments last year, um, that the fiscal year began in DC yesterday, uh, will get us 27% of the way there. So we have a lot more work to do. So stay tuned from emails from us about how we can influence the mayor, influence the council, and make sure that we get investments that we know need to support a plan that the mayor has already said that she supports. It looks like there might be a question. Yeah, so half of it is found is funded by uh, the deed and recordation tax. So whenever you buy or sell a house, there's fees associated with that um, that probably make up $45 million of it. The other chunk of change is made up by um, non-limited, like non-designated city funds. So from other taxes, um, from other revenue sources. Um, but what I think is a really cool model, and this is a little pet project of mine, was I think it's fascinating that we have affordable housing funded by uh, taxes uh, when people buy and sell houses. So what would it look like if we also had something like that to uh, flow directly into the homeless services system?
Great question. So there are a few different numbers we look at. The cost of someone just staying on the streets and utilizing city services is about $40,000 a year. The cost of someone staying in prison for a year is somewhere between sixty dollars and $80,000 a year. And the cost of someone staying in a psychiatric hospital is about $120,000 a year. To put someone into housing, into permanent supportive housing, which is the gold standard, the most intensive intervention is $20,000 a year. Um, so it's much cheaper. Um, we, I don't have a good answer to your question about halfway houses. Um, I don't think that that's very predominant in DC, um, but that I can look into that and let you know. Yeah, so we definitely a lot, a lot, a lot of it is medical. Um, people experiencing homelessness. I mean, we have clients at Miriam's Kitchen. We're right in Foggy Bottom, about a block and a half away from the GW Hospital, and we'll have clients that will go there two times a day. Um, we have clients that will go there every day for a year or several times a week. So people using the hospital as their main medical, using the ER as their main medical point. I mean, I probably call the ambulance once a day um, for our clients who are just really sick. So the majority of the cost is from both mental health and physical health. Um, and then also like soup kitchens and shelters and social workers and suicide hotline costs and things like that. Um, there's also a lot of interaction with, uh, uh, with police that drives up costs as well. But I think to one of my favorite stories um, is about this gentleman named Walden Adams, who I think Chris, you know him. Do you know Walden? Okay. Walden uh, was born in DC about 50 years ago. From the age of about 15 to 35, he was living at St. Elizabeth's, uh, the mental hospital. He had co-occurring disorders, bipolar, substance abuse. He had severe asthma. He blew off his hand, fingers in a dynamite accident. Very sick guy. And he was the type of guy, and he'll tell you, that he was going to the hospital all the time. He was one of the, the highest utilizers in the city. Um, Walden got put into permanent supportive housing about five years ago. He just ran his 17th marathon. He's now working at Pathways to Housing as a street outreach professional, connecting individuals experiencing homelessness to services. Um, his viral load is under control, his medication, his mental health is under control, he's been clean and sober for five years, and he's training for a 100-mile marathon. Um, so we can take someone who is going to the hospital all the time for pretty intensive stuff, a lot of, um, a lot of different medical things associated with substance abuse and with uh, severe HIV AIDS, um, and now he's training for a 100-mile marathon um, and hasn't been to the ER for anything like that um, since he got into housing. So I think, to me, he's the success story in this city. But we know that there are hundreds and hundreds of other people like him across the city whose lives have changed after they get into housing. Yeah, so permanent supportive housing has 
really two components. One is uh, a, a rental voucher, so people pay 30% of their income. So for a lot of people, um, income is Social Security or SSDI, SSI, which is about 730 something dollars a month. So they're paying around $200 a month, $150, $200 a month. Um, and that's a lifetime of affordable housing, uh, a voucher to make it affordable. Um, it's also paired with supportive housing, which means that at Miriam's Kitchen, we offer support. We provide uh, supportive housing to 102 residents around the city. Um, I like to think that our case managers are the best in the city and they're on call 24 seven. Um, but the regulations and the stipulations say that you have to get case management once every other week. Um, and at Miriam's, we really believe that should be client driven and really centered around client goals. So for some clients, it's I want to get sober. For some clients, I want to find a job. I want to reconnect with my family. Um, but what we do know that's pretty standard is there's a lot of re-entry issues and skills that our clients have to relearn. So what I find heartbreaking, when many of our clients get into housing, um, they'll sleep on the floor, even though it's a fully furnished apartment. They're just so used to sleeping outside that um, they're not ready to sleep in the bed. Many times clients will also bring in like wooden pallets and sleep on those because that's what they're used to. So our housing, uh, supportive housing team will like work with them to like try to get them to sleep in a bed. A lot of folks have also not gone grocery shopping and not cooked for a long time. So going to the food store, sometimes our chefs will teach folks like this is healthy, this is not healthy, this is how you prepare this, this is, um, this is how you sign up for food stamps, things like that. So a lot of the support permanent, a lot of the housing services are focused on relearning like daily living skills. Uh, we also have an art therapist who goes to our clients in housing because that's just fun for them and it's therapeutic. And we bring all sorts of services. We also have like picnics and try to bring all of our residents together because a lot of people are living in scattered site apartments all around the city. Um, if you live in an apartment building, you very well could have someone who is in permanent supportive housing in your apartment and you wouldn't know. Um, but we also know that they report some isolation. Um, so we try to do whatever we can to bring them together for like a concert or for picnics or for a play. Um, so it, it can involve a lot of different things. Um, and our retention rate in the Miriam's Kitchen permanent supportive housing program is 95%. So we're very proud of that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Great question. So Miriam's budget is around three mil now. So we, mm -hmm. so we have grown since since you were last there, and we'd love to offer a tour to anyone who's here, and we can really show you our services um, and our space, which is now we've totally outgrown. We're actually under uh, undergoing right now, as we speak, I hope they're there now, a major kitchen renovation. They have, I thought they were gonna like put some new paint in, and I don't know, like get a new stove. Uh, they tore down the kitchen, um, took down all the tiles and everything, so we are going to have a beautiful brand new kitchen that's all been donated, all the labor, all the parts, all the architecture has been donated. Um, so we kind of look at the food as the way to draw people in. 
So we have four professionally trained chefs that, um, I mean, when there's leftover food that they can't reuse, like I get to eat it, and I've definitely put on weight since I've started working there. Um, it's delicious. Um, so we serve a five or six part meal for breakfast and for dinner. So breakfast always is, uh, there's plain eggs or there's like eggs with meat. There is hash browns. There's normally a pastry. There's a green salad. There's a fruit salad. Um, so we get people in the door through healthy meals. We are also working on a project called NK Plate. We know that the three diseases that people in our dining room have most frequently are uh, diabetes, heart disease, and HIV. So we've worked with a council of national medical providers and disease specialists to make sure that our meals match the nutritious needs of those populations. And um, so all of our, we have like a nutrition intern, all of our stuff. We used to say all of our things were nutritious and that was true, but now we have a way to actually rank how nutritious our meals are. So people come into Miriam's for the meal and they stay for services and they stay for housing. So on an average morning, we'll serve breakfast to about 200 people and dinner to about 125 people. So breakfast, our doors open at 6.30. People walk in and there's a cereal bar or an oatmeal bar because we know that people probably haven't eaten since we closed last night. So we wanna get something in them. Um, and then they can have coffee and tea and talk with a case manager get toiletries, get clothes, get a haircut. Twice a week we have doctors there, once a week we have lawyers there. Um, we try to do everything we can in a space that's not much bigger than this room. Um, and then we'll serve breakfast, which people enjoy. And then from about uh, 8.30 to about 9.30 we have art therapy. So that looks like um, painting, sculpting, beading, writing, poetry, um, some photography, anything that we can do in that space. And really, we work with our clients to try to engage them through art. Then our doors close at about 9.30, um, 9.45. And we open up again at 2.30, starting with art therapy and then going towards dinner. So our staff is about, we have close to 50 full-time staff. Um, so I imagine that is m much bigger than uh, when you were there. We... Um, yeah, um, so a pretty huge growth. Um, we used to rent a room or two from Western. Um, now we rent the entire floor um, and we don't have enough room. Um, we also rent an apartment building across the street. It's a two bedroom apartment that we have about 15 staff in and we're about to expand that some more. Um, so we try to do whatever we can. And what I actually really like about working at Miriam's is that um, it's not a fancy place. There are no, no real no real frills. The only person who has their own door is our CEO. Everyone else is really in this kind of community environment where we recognize that like, we, we want our money to be going towards our guests, towards our clients. Um, and we do that a lot in our kitchen. So we serve gourmet meals. There have been, last week there was veal. Um, there are freak, there's been crab, there's shellfish, like shrimp, yummy, yummy food. Um, but we only spend 44 cents a plate. The only things we buy are dairy and eggs. Everything else is donated. So we get don a lot of donations from Trader Joe's, a lot from the White House Garden. So once a month, we'll get a call from the Secret Service and say like, our van's about to come up and Secret Service agents will unload the produce into our garage. It is the safest produce we ever get. Um, <laughs> but we also get donations from gleaning from farmers markets, um, from restaurants, so our chefs have done a really great job cutting costs in our meals program, so we can pay um, 
we can have some more flexibility when it comes to case management. So providing IDs for some people, um, you know, vitamins, anything we, anything we can fit in a tiny space. Yeah. You know what, I don't, I know that the majority of our permanent supportive housing uh, contract is funded by the Department of Human Services. Um, we do supplement that with uh, with Miriam's money, but I don't know the, the breakdown. I try to keep my head out of the out of the budget and finances as long as they give me my paycheck. Insurance, your taxpayer, your tax dollars. Uh, sometimes, sometimes DC Alliance, Medicare. Sometimes people don't have insurance, um, but we know that. The money's coming from somewhere. It's normally coming from our tax dollars, and we would rather have our tax dollars go towards putting someone in an apartment rather than just like managing their medical stuff that will uh, that they're better able to take care of once they have a safe and affordable place to stay. I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, we do know that homelessness, every person is different. Every person's experience of homelessness is different and everybody's cause of homelessness is different. But there are some common themes. So we use a great tool that was started in Canada, that was used in Salt Lake City, that's used in over 300 communities around the country called the VI-SPIDAT. We call it the VI-SPIDAT because no one can remember. It stands for the Vulnerability Index Service Prioritization Decision Analysis Tool. Um, it is a um, VI SPDAT, um, and it is a national best practice. Um, it's about a 10 or 15 minute survey full of yes or no questions that really assesses how vulnerable you are. Um, so the VI part, the vulnerability index, assesses, uh, assesses how likely you are to die on the street. Um, it's crude, it's triage, um, but it works. And the SPDAT part, the service prioritization part, determines like where are you in your homelessness? Are you the type of person that would benefit from just like a short-term shallow subsidy that would help you pay your security deposit and like that's all you need? Or do you need something more intensive? So that breaks people into really like four categories of homelessness. So the people with the 
really high service needs um, are generally people who are experiencing chronic homelessness, frequently have medical issues, substance issue, mental health issue. These are people that are going to the hospital multiple times a week. Um, and these are people that have been homeless for 20, 30 years in some cases. Um, so they're the frequent utilizers. And we know that um, they really need permanent supportive housing, which is the lifetime voucher and also the lifetime of case management. We acknowledge that like permanent supportive housing is expensive. It's about $16,000 a year per person, which is still way cheaper than $40,000 a year per person, but it's expensive. Um, and we're working with a pretty tight budget. So the if you kind of get in like that medium vulnerable range, so a step below permanent supportive housing, you qualify for what's called rapid rehousing. Um, rapid rehousing has a family portion in DC and an individual part in DC. The family part needs a lot of work. Um, the individual part is still pretty new um, and we're hopeful that it will help some people, but that is a short-term rent subsidy. So between three months and a year and then short-term case management services really focused on helping people connect to income um, or connect to employment. So it's kind of like people who can be self-sufficient, they just need a little bit of help up and a little support for a while. And then there's like that third vulnerable, like the least vulnerable folks who are just poor. Um, they're ju they just need help paying their rent. So that's called the targeted affordable housing voucher, which is um, a section eight voucher for people experiencing homelessness. So those are our three interventions. And then like the fourth one, which ran out of money because it's so successful is called ERAP, um, the emergency, blanket on it. It helps people pay their first month rent and put in their down payment for an apartment. So it's not much money, but a lot of people who are um, poor in DC just need a little bit of help. Um, the, the housing wage in DC, the wage you would need to earn to be able to afford housing and pay 30% of your income on housing is $28 an hour. Um, so people are just poor. Um, and we need to do a better job to make sure that people who are born in D.C., who are raised in D.C., are able to stay in D.C. What do you mean when you say taking homes? So what's great about doing this work in D.C. is that D.C. is the most progressive jurisdiction when it comes to this. So we are able to use local housing money to pay for housing for people who are undocumented. Um, but what kind of underlies all of this, like we have these great interventions. We know they work. We know we can pay for them when we have the money, but there's just not enough. There's just not enough housing. Um, in, in order to meet the city's goal of ending chronic homelessness by 2017, which is this fiscal year, um, we would need 2,500 units of rapid rehousing and about 1,000 units of targeted affordable housing and about 1,000 units of permanent supportive housing. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of work. And that's really where 
we could use your help through the Way Home campaign. We need as many people who are connected to DC to come uh, and advocate with us. Advocacy looks like a bunch of different things. So we have an annual lobby day where we bring about 200 people to the Wilson building and we set up meetings. We generally have an action targeting the mayor. So last year we had about 1,000 people turn out to a rally. We have call-in days where we'll make Chairman Middleton's phone ring every five minutes for the entire day. We'll have letter writing campaigns. We'll have smaller lobbying sessions. Um, sign up for email list. The information is on your chair. Um, but if we're going to make this 2017 thing work, or really even a 2018 thing work, we're going to need to pile on the pressure and make sure that the mayor and make sure our city, our DC council knows that we would rather put people into housing um, than let them kind of languish on the streets. And I like, for me as a person of faith, um, it's, it's a moral thing, right? That it's unacceptable that in our nation's capital, there are 8,500 people on a given night who are experiencing homelessness. It's unacceptable that 1,500 of those have ex been experiencing chronic homelessness. And what pains me the most is we know how to fix it. It's, it's really not rocket science. Um, it's not that hard. Give people housing, give people the supports they need, and they'll thrive and they'll surprise you. Um, but we just don't have enough money for it, and we need to keep making the case in the city of $13 billion with a $13 billion budget, no one should be homeless. So we is the Way Home Campaign. Um, so the, the Way Home Campaign is run by Miriam's Kitchen, but brings together 90 organizations, including this church. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. So it's a, it's a huge coalition. It's one of the biggest coalitions in the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a list of all our organizations. It's right here. And my one ask, my, one of my many asks, is to not only sign up for the Way Home campaign emails, um, we also have a happy hour coming up this Thursday night. If you're interested, I can send out information. Um, but we're always in search of people who know how to get in touch with Mayor Bowser. We keep trying, and we haven't really found that avenue. We haven't found that person whose phone call she'll answer. Um, and we need to. If we're going to make this work, we need to. So I know that people in this room have been in the area for a while, might have deep connections. If you can think of anyone who the mayor listens to, or e and even if you don't know that person, but if you know who the mayor listens to, please let us know. Um, it's one of our biggest goals, and I keep sitting down to try to power map the mayor and see what her connections are, and I, I just can't figure it out. Um, so if you have any advice or any knowledge on that, it would be greatly appreciated. Any other questions? Yeah, so on one of these pages, um, my email address should be at the bottom, I hope. Hmm. It might not be. Um, it looks like there was a sign-in sheet, though. If I can gr grab a copy of that, I can email everybody the information. Any other questions? Yes. Um, so, 
yeah so those are two pretty different categories i think um but we always hear from our elected officials there's not enough housing there's plenty of housing there's so much housing it's just not affordable for our folks so that's where the vouchers come in um i do think that with these permanent supportive housing and section 8 vouchers people are able to afford um, housing we know that a lot of that housing is going to be in wards seven and eight which is in kind of my mind uh, a new form of redlining really concentrating the poorest and the blackest people to one part of town um but the idea of inclusionary zoning has been floated around for folks experiencing homelessness i don't think that's going to work i think inclusionary zoning is really workforce housing um which should be explored for people who are in the workforce. The city needs as many different affordable housing interventions as we can get. Um, but I do think there is enough housing um, as long as we don't see more closure of the Section 8 housing and affordable housing that's already been built. Um, that is not our. That is not my email. Um, but Toy Houses Real Homes is another initiative we've we've launched. Uh, last week, we took mason jars full of monopoly houses and delivered them to each council member. And each monopoly house in the jar represents someone who's gotten housed in the past month. Um, so over the summer and June, we housed 60 people. In July, 68, and in August, 81. So we see the numbers going up. And our ask for our council members and our mayor is to help us fill the jar. That through sustained investments, we can end chronic homelessness. So if you're interested, we also go every month to update those jars um, and let the council know that it's working, but it needs to work faster and it needs to help more people. It is a hashtag for social media. And I'm happy, I think I have cards on me if folks are interested and just can just email me that way as well. Any other questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm on, the, I'm on the website in a few places. I'm happy to stick around and answer any questions.